Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello and welcome to Back to Basics. My name is Leticia Latino. I'm your host. My guest today is David Edwards. He spent about 35 years of his life serving mostly lower income people on three different continents and is familiar with the challenges and unfairness of life. In 2018, while working with doctors, dentists, counselors, and community health workers, he had an epiphany and decided to write a book about it, which he titled New You, Who Knew? which has been described as an easy to digest and implement guide that builds confidence, esteem, and self-compassion in balance. And who doesn't need that? Hello, David. Welcome to Back to Basics. <laughs> Hi, Leticia. It's nice to be here. Well, you know, it's great. Every time I have a guest willing to give us, uh, shed some light on how to build confidence and self-esteem, you know, it's a, it's a welcome guest. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> we all need a boost, it seems like, doesn't it? Absolutely. No matter how figure out you think you have it, uh, there's there's a hit coming from somewhere, <laughs> right? So, so David, I would love to to hear a little bit about uh, your younger years. I'm very curious, usually, about my guests and what they were passionate about growing up, and just a little bit of who you were, and and eventually we'll go into who you became. Sure. It's always awkward because I've been around for a while now, but you go back far enough, you know, I was just born like most people. I had a mom and a dad and my dad was in construction. Mm -hmm. So we moved around a lot. I think I went to like eight elementary schools because, you know, wow. we moved where the work was. Hmm. And uh, I have two brothers. I have an older brother, actually, who's passed away now. Um, oh, sorry to rather hear. tragically, he... Uh, he made some really poor decisions as a teenager, I would say, mm. that it kind of carried through his life. He spent most of his life in a homeless situation, mm. kind of being, he was in Miami, I know, for a while. Mm. <laughs> but he was in Portland and he was in Pittsburgh. And if you're homeless, being in Pittsburgh in the wintertime is not a happy thing. Yeah, no, my God, I cannot even imagine. Yeah, but anyways... Uh, he was a good man, very artistic, very talented in that way. I, w I wished I had some artistic talent, but it skipped me somehow in the gene <laughs> pool. Uh, my children, my wife, I've been, let me see, is it next week? In two weeks, I've been married 37 years. Oh, my God, what a milestone. Congratulations. Yeah, and my wife has all kinds of artistic talent, so you see what I lack. I'm surrounded with by others around me. Uh, my nice. children have two daughters that are grown, and they're both very talented in that regard. And, and I have a younger brother who I don't think is particularly artistic either. So maybe, you know, he has hair, though. <laughs> I'm not sure where that falls out or how that's well, fair. But... Another, another thing that skipped you on the gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it was kind of like, on my dad's side, I look so much like my dad, right? Because he was bald and 
anyways, carried his weight around the middle. And my uncle, like on my mom's side, though, my uncle, 85, he still has lots of hair. And so my yeah. brothers both got that side. Uh-huh. Anyways. The hair is a mystery. I, I, I hear in my own family, too, that the hair uh, for men, it's like my dad has also a full head of hair at 88 and my brother is bald. And so, you know, I'm always very curious about that. But in any case, so do I pick that you w- would have wanted to be artistic growing up? Was that one of your passions or uh, as you grew up? So I, I, uh, I would have liked to have been artistic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've gone out, how can I say, I've kind of gone at this in a very different way. So I like creativity, right? The whole creative process. And what I've done is I've applied it in business instead, mm-hmm. uh, and in healthcare. And so in like, in my career, which I've done a lot of different things at this point, but, uh, I was the chief financial officer of a heart institute. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to create systems and processes that would align the effort of the cardiologists. We worked with about 50 cardiologists. They were all in different groups, ranging from 10 or 15, you know, in a group. And they were quite competitive, you know, warmly competitive with okay. one another. And there was two big hospitals in town, and they were more than warmly competitive with each other. And our job, of course, was to say, how do we align all these cats who are trying to do their own thing? And, you know, these are all good people. They're smart. They're really hardworking. And, you know, how do we create alignment? And so what we did was we created an insurance product. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't to make money. And it wasn't to have power over somebody. The idea was how do we create incentives that align the effort of all these smart, independent individuals and organizations in order to accomplish a purpose that we all shared? And and it worked marvelously. This was back in the 1990s. Anyways, it really worked well. So we did all kinds of things like that that I thought were creative Mm-hmm. as a way to move our shared purposes forward. And so that's kind of how I've tended to be creative as to seek alternative creative solutions to challenging problems in ways that maybe we hadn't thought about before. I mean, uh, we developed a restaurant partnership mm-hmm. and we realized, I mean, again, I love data as well. So, you know, we looked at data that said, at the time, and I think it's probably even higher now, but uh, about 40% of all meals are eaten outside the home. Mm. And obviously that varies from person to person. But we looked at that and said, if we wanna help people to be healthier, we can't ignore eating out, right? If that's 40% of your eating, And by the nature of eating out, it's probably 70% of your calories. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we developed a partnership with restaurants. Think of it like a good housekeeping seal of approval, if anybody remembers Mm -hmm. what that is. Yes. You know, this kind of third-party validation that this thing is okay. Underwriters Laboratory or Consumer Reports, you know, lots of people fill this kind of role. And so we wanted to fill the role for restaurants. And we thought information is not the be all and end all. 
but information is an essential component of making better decisions. Mm -hmm. And so we worked with restaurants and we said, hey, we'll go through and analyze your menu. And we will give, you know, menu items, our Heart Institute seal of approval, um, if they meet certain criteria. And then when the chefs were more willing to work with us, we actually worked with them, with the dietitian who was amazing. And we then helped them take normal menu items and reduce like fat and calories without reducing the flavor and enjoyment. Right. There's a point at which you can reduce them and they still taste really good. And then you get it further and then it like blah and everything, nothing, mm-hmm. everything tastes the same. Right. So there's a point in the middle where we make a, enough difference that it matters and it's still enjoyable to go out. And you don't like not want to go someplace because everything tastes like boiled peas or something. <laughs> and so we did this partnership and we morphed that and we said, well, we're going to put out an event where the best restaurants in town come together and they compete with each other to put on the best show. So like every restaurant had a table, basically. They got to decorate it how they wanted, you know, be that creative person that they are or or the group that they were. and, And they put on the best meal that they could. And people paid like $100 a plate. So this wasn't, you know, for the low income, but it raised a little bit of money but what we did with the money then was we took the chefs who won the the event, if you will, there was like a, a competition, and I think it was the top two, and then we sent them to California, to Napa Valley, to this healthy cooking school, and they learn how to, you know, do things that make sense, right? Maybe if you mix half butter and half olive oil instead of all butter, you still get that flavor. You still get the the impact that you want from the fats, but you know, half of them are healthier. It's Mm -hmm. a move in the right direction, right? So there's all kinds of things that they learn and they incorporate that. And then without any other influence from us, right? We were setting up processes and intelligence that kind of leaned people in this direction of, yeah, we can help take care of people and still have a great restaurant and have great food that people write about and want to come take a part of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we did all these things that were creative, but not necessarily, you know, like me drawing pictures or doing any other of those kinds of typically creative things. And I love Anyways. that because, uh, no, and, and it's very interesting because it really demystifies that idea that, you know, to be creative, you have to go into an artistic related field. Like there's some in business and that's why I, I you know, sometimes say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, my undergrad is in business as well. So I say business, it's a great platform because it allows you to really have paint whatever painting you want to, you know, it's an empty canvas. You really can do so many things with that mindset. So I know you went into, into healthcare and, and you, after working for many, many years, you know, with uh, low income underserved people, you, you got to a moment in your life where you, you describe it as a wow moment or as a ha moment. And, and that's what prompted you to write a book. So why don't we share a little bit about that wow moment with us yeah. and, and that experience and what prompted you to write a book about it? Thank you. Um, 
we uh, were trying to be creative. <laughs> I was the CEO of a community health center, and we had, over about four years, had done some really good things. We had taken a reputation that was struggling, made it super strong. People wanted to be associated with our organization. They wanted to come to us for services. They wanted to partner with us. So they were you know, healthcare providers. We had taken a, a struggling financially organization and become very stable and strong financially. We had taken our quality, which was very inconsistent and kind of low, <laughs> low to middle. And we had developed consistently the best quality measures of anybody in our region. So we'd done a lot of work. And we had built, I think probably most importantly, a clinical model that put you as the patient, as the captain of the care team. So in our integrated health center, we try to look at you, Leticia, for example, if you came in as a patient, you might be seeking some help with some physical health challenges. Mm -hmm. You might be seeking some help with some behavioral or mental health challenges, maybe oral health, you know, whatever aspect of your entire wholeness as a human being, as a person, we want to look at you as that whole person and engage with you with the basic primary care services that you would need as a whole person. But as a result of that, though, and all of these different team members, you might have a nurse, a doctor, a dentist, a hygienist, a counselor, a coach, a community health worker. You might be taking a Zumba class with us or a cooking class or, you know, it could be any number of different things. But we want to look at you as a whole person. And because you know your life better than anybody on our team, we want you to be the captain. And so we were taking this model and we were in that fortunate position to be able to be building a new building. We had our old building. I, as the CEO, had been moved into a closet. And then I was moved out of my closet to put three dentists in my closet. And we were kind of just that full. And so we were designing and then started to build a new 40,000 square foot health center and incorporated all of these various services with place for doing all kinds of fun things. And I asked this question though, I said, if we have the best computers and we have the best people and we have the best model of care and it's in a viable business model and all these things are good, right? They're all necessary, but what are we doing to help the patient be the captain of the care team more successfully? Mm -hmm. Right? How are we helping them to fulfill that role? And then we just started asking, well, what does that really mean? Right? Using the words, you're the captain of the care team, sounds good. But until we really define that, help people understand it, and help them develop the skills and, under, and the principles that underlie it, right? it's weak. It's like saying, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. Well, as a motivator, right, it's something that we want to encourage action, I'm hungry is kind of vague. Do I want sweets? Do I want salt? Do I want liquids? Do I want Chinese food, Mexican food? Do I want a hot dog? Right? You have to be more defined in order for it to be actionable to do something about your hunger, at least if you want it to be something that serves you well, right? So we want to be thoughtful. 
And so we started to ask the questions. I had this great team of people. I'm pretty decent at asking questions. So we started asking, well, what does it mean to be the captain of the care team? And what are the skills and the principles? And as we started that conversation, so that was the first wow or first epiphany, I had my second. There was probably three of them here in fairly short order. And it was, we realized that this was all about change. Mm -hmm. As human beings, we have two kinds of change that we have to deal with. The first kind of change is the stuff going on around us. When I was early in my career, I was uh, a CFO again. So back in those days, if you were the CFO, the chief financial officer, you were also the chief technology officer. Because if we didn't have enough technology to justify a whole new position like we do today. And so, you know, I had to do everything to do with computers was me. And I bought a modem, you know, it cost $3,000 <laughs> and it weighed about 20 pounds. And it was a big piece of technology and it allowed a remote clinic to talk to the main clinic at just barely dial-up speeds, <laughs> if you can imagine. <laughs> and now we are on Zoom all the, literally yeah. across yeah. the country. Incredible, indeed. And it's on video, and we could share screens, and we could do all kinds of amazing things. We could put fancy backgrounds behind us like we were at the Taj Mahal or something, right? The technology evolves. We need to keep up with that. So there's that kind of change. Much more important, however, is how do we manage the change that's going on up in between our ears? How do we manage the change of who we are becoming much more than what we are doing? And so I started studying change models. Now you would think it's kind of like if I'm gonna build a plane, right? I know that I need wings, I need engines, I need a cockpit, I need wheels, I right? You could kind of get a how-to list and figure out how do you build a plane. Unfortunately, when it comes to human beings or anything to have to do with human beings, nothing is quite that simple. And so the psychologists and the neuroscientists and all the people who study this kind of stuff have different theories or models of change. One of my favorite a lot of fancy words, the trans-theoretical model of change is a good one, but then there's a, lot of, a bunch of others. And so being a somewhat reformed finance guy, I built a spreadsheet. <laughs> I compared, you know, six or seven of the most common theories around human change. And what I realized, kind of visually putting them all in front of me, was at the core of every model of human change is personal motivation. Now, you know, in, in business, we study motivation. I've read, I have several books in my library um, about motivation. And a lot of smart people have written books about motivation. But 90% of this work is designed for employers so that I, as an employer, can understand what levers I need to pull to get my employees to do what I want them to do. <laughs> and that's the, that's the general focus of motivation, right? It's a tool of business. And what this was talking about, though, is much more fundamental. It's much more basic. It's really about why do I, as a human being, as a single individual, get up in the morning? What do I bother to make breakfast? What do I bother to fix things for my kids? 
Why do I put up with my spouse's shenanigans? <laughs> Why do I, you know, show up for work on time or not? Right? What is my personal motivation? I don't like the mechanical words like drive. We see that all the time. You know, you've probably seen this. I've probably written this in a job description at some point. Never anymore. But <laughs> at some point, I would have said, you know, we're looking for somebody who can drive change, who can drive progress, who can drive performance, right? And as I studied these ideas behind human motivation, I realized, like the late Stephen R. Covey said, we can drive a process, but we cannot drive people, mm -hmm. right? So if you're married, right? Yes, I am. How long have you been married? Um, almost 15 years. All right. So married 15 years. If you went to your spouse after the podcast and said, sweetheart, I love you so much. Drive me to the Home Depot. I need a new tool. If you can get me there in 20 minutes, you'll be a good spouse. <laughs> are they going to like, oh, oh, yeah, let's get in the car. Let's go. Or are they going to resist that a little bit, maybe? My, my husband will say, what's wrong with your car? <laughs> 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 exactly <laughs> it's it's this idea if we think about you know relationships right we can't drive our teenager we could drive them to a soccer match or something but we can't drive our teenager right and yes. i don't know why we think we can drive our employees either i i wrote an article over 20 years ago now and I said, healthcare leaders as gardeners is what I titled it as. Mm -hmm. And this idea, we don't drive people. We may feel like we do. We may feel like we have influence and power, but really they're human beings, right? And so what we need to do is think of our business more like a garden than a machine. And in a garden, what makes a successful garden? It's nurturing, it's alignment. It's making sure there's adequate positive or reinforcing forces that we overcome the negative or the distracting forces. And then we unleash the creativity and the natural energy and drive, if you will, of our people. And to me, that's a much more human way to look at it than the mechanical way, which, which I believe has been overwhelmingly destructive to human society over, you know, over the last 50 to 100 years in particular. But that's a whole nother topic. But anyways, and so I get a little distracted. I'm sorry. No, so with that, no, no, but I love, I love all you're saying, especially where you say we cannot drive others. That's powerful. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I wish I'd invented that, but I didn't. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I started studying human motivation. Right, Not as in how do I get you to do stuff, but as in what motivates me to do whatever it is I'm doing. And frankly, what's holding me back from doing the things that I kind of know that I should do, but I have such a hard time doing sometimes at least. Mm -hmm. And so as I started studying that, I discovered some principles. And they fall into three general areas. The first foundation, if you will, so this isn't the master course or the advanced, you know, graduate degree or something. These are the fundamentals. This is the, you know, what's that old book, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten, uh -huh, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, this is kind of that level of a course, 
but we need the basics. Mm -hmm. um, Vince Lombardi was a very famous football coach, I think at Notre Dame. And he would take these high school football players who came in in the freshman year, and he would say, this is a football. He would hold it up for them. He would describe the size of it, the shape of it, the texture of it, the laces, how to hold it, right? Very basic things that these kids know, knew really well, right? They were the best high school players from all over the country. I mean, they weren't novices to this at all, but he always started with the basics, with the foundations, which is why I kind of love your podcast, you know, because if we lose track of our foundations, of our basics, mm -hmm. and then we try to build all this stuff on top of it, we're building on a sandy foundation. So we really have to say and remind ourselves, am I building my life on the solid foundations of human performance, of human success? And so that's where I was kind of looking at this from at the very basic level. What are the tools and what are the principles that no matter my education, no matter my background, no matter my race or gender, you know, no matter what my history is, what are principles that I can hold on to and build as a solid foundation to build all the great things that we want in our lives. And so the first one is our values, this idea that we need to make our own personal core values explicit. And I say those words very specifically because a lot of people will talk about values. You should, you know, understand your values. And they spend 10 minutes and they say, you know, write down what your values are. I was in a course with my wife the other day and they talked about values which makes me thrilled right but it was basically you know write down what your values are there you go now you know what your values are congratulations mm -hmm. and unfortunately it's kind of like what we talked about earlier about hunger right well if i'm going to satisfy my hunger in a way that's powerful and that meets my goals i need to be a little more specific a little mm -hmm. more explicit because then that becomes actionable it becomes something that I can realize in my life and use to accomplish the things that are going to satisfy my needs. And so if I have vague hunger, right, I'm going to go into the kitchen and what's the first thing I'm going to see? Well, I don't know about your kitchen, but it might be a bag of chips mm -hmm. or it might be that box of donuts or the cookie jar or, you know, things that are handy and sweet and salty or whatever. And so Hopefully we've designed our kitchen so that it's a nectarine or an orange <laughs> or something. But, yeah. but you know, before I get too far down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> so, but, but the idea is, the core idea is, until we've taken our values, identified our top five and ranked them, and then, and I'll just give it away. You don't even need to buy my book anymore because <laughs> I'll just tell it to you because uh, I think it's so important. I'm sure I'm sure you're creating even more interest in it because it just <laughs> sounds like very specific, which I think we are lacking in these these days in terms of book content. Well, we do sometimes. So so we need to do three things with our values to make them powerful, to make them actionable, to make it so that the default is that we actually live our core personal values on a day-to-day -day basis then they become powerful and so 
what are the three things? You define it. So each of your top five core values, you write it down. Now, this isn't a paragraph or a two-page essay. This is a sentence or two, right? This whole thing will fit on one page most likely. And so what is my value? So for me, one of my core personal values is transparency. I define it very simply as having a lack of hidden agendas. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking to Leticia and I'm talking to, let's say I work with you or for you, and then we have Jose and John and Mary. I don't tell Leticia one story, John a different story, and Mary a different story, depending on what I want out of them, mm -hmm. right? That's called manipulation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't have any room for that in my life. I've been subject to it. I don't like it. I don't think it builds me up as a human being. I don't think it builds trust in a team or in between people. And so transparency for me is very important, but I define it very simply. Mm -hmm. The second thing that we need to do is we need to say, what does it look like? Like on a behavioral level, on what I am doing, what I am thinking, what I am saying, what does it look like? And then thirdly, we need to say, so what? Why is my life better off by living this value the way I've described it? And again, these aren't, you know, this isn't a big essay like you have to sweat nickels that get this big project done. This entire process of identifying your values, ranking them, defining them, describing them, and telling yourself why it matters can be done usually within an hour and a half to two and a half hours. That's all the work, and it's completely free. I've given you all my secrets now, so um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very straightforward. But the research tells us 80% of people have never done it. 80% no. of people. So that means if you're listening to this, you may feel like you're the exception, and maybe you are. But unfortunately, you're most likely not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point, you know, and I've shared on the podcast before that uh, when pandemic hit and, you know, we had all of a sudden a little bit more time and I wanted to put together my personal web page. Like I decided that, you know, it's who I am at work is very different from other things that I like, including the podcast. And so how am I going to communicate really the full me and I did a, an exercise very similar to what you're describing and it was very hard it took me three months to come up with that very short you know concise <sighs> sentence because I realized there's a ton of values that I live by but from those as you said to be specific like really which ones are gonna drive me they were just a handful you know that are the ones that are a must this is non-negotiable like, you know, eth being ethical. And, uh, you know, for me in the in the work I do, that I don't like the gray area. I don't like when I smell, you know, some projects awarded for strange reasons and all that stuff. And so it was a very powerful exercise. And indeed, I thought I started it thinking this is going to be a, a breeze because I've always yeah. been, I've always read a lot of personal growth books. And I, I'm like, oh, this, I, I have myself figured out. And I found that it was... <laughs> way more challenging than what I thought. So I'm with you in the invitation of really being specific and naming it because we definitely think we probably have it more squared out than, than we do. There you go. 
Well, you are definitely in that 20% then. Good for you. Congratulations. Well, I'm sure I'm sure there's a ton of stuff I think can do, but uh, yes, I do. And it was extremely helpful. And I manifested this podcast that way, you know, as a way of not leaving parts of myself that were repressed. And I'm like, I'm happy with what I do. I don't need to change my job, but there, my industry wasn't, I'm still not very happy with what's going on in the telecom industry right now. It's very cutthroat. And I say, I need something else. Otherwise I'm going to go crazy because I don't, I don't think I need a job change, but I need something that nurtures my, my soul and my purpose and, you know, being an agent of change, it was something that I say, yeah, I like to inspire people to change. And so there you go. I know interviews like these, you know, when somebody listens to it and maybe we give them that extra push, that extra hint to grab a paper and pen and say, I'm just going to write it. And, and you know, just having that coming, that good coming out of this chat, it's already fills my heart. And so that's, that's you know, to share a little bit about my own journey, but uh, at least uh, it sounds like I'm on the right track. <laughs> well, it's a it's a powerful foundation. Again, moving away from a mechanical to a more natural metaphor, think of it like a tree, like a tree, any tree that's viable, that's going to be vibrant and productive, you know, and bear a lot of fruit, like a cherry tree, for example, you know, it's going to have a strong root system. It's going to be deep and wide and effective and functional. And our values are like roots. They keep us grounded to what's really important to us. And that's the key, a key part of this process, which I, I'm sure you noticed, as you, because you really put some effort into this. right? There are lots of values. Our parents have values. Our spouse has values. Our friends have values. There's our church. You know, There's all kinds of influences on our values. But what's really important is that these are your own core personal values. And they may not look like works. And they may not like work look like your spouses or your significant others or your best friends. And that's okay, right? Because each of us is an individual person. We're getting at what is your motivation now, not anybody else's. I think that's a really important distinction because there's a lot of influences around us. And we need to distinguish between those. And this is a part of this discovery process. Mm. What amazed me me was that as I started, because I've always thought values were important, but I didn't understand them as specifically. What I found out was that there's been a lot of research on this. So it's not just me or Plato or some other smart person talking about it, right? There's been a lot of research in the last, say, 30 years that demonstrates these benefits. And I'll compare and contrast. So when we go through this effort of making our values explicit, it tends toward greater purpose, a greater sense of our purpose. And the opposite of that is to languish. You ever known somebody, you know, they're just languishing, they just can't, can't get any direction in life. They, they just don't know where to go, where to start, right? They don't know why. Why does it matter? They're, they're languishing. Well, the opposite of that is to have purpose. And when you make your values explicit, it connects you with, with these, this aspect of your core purpose. And so it tends to all the benefits of having purpose versus languishing. It helps people 
with a greater sense of well-being. And we can look at well-being as this sense that my life is on track. I'm not perfect. I realize that, and not everything's going the way I'd like it to necessarily. But overall, I feel like my life is on track. It's okay. I'm moving in the direction that I want to move, right? Versus a sense of apathy, right? I mean, and so we have these comparing these contra contrasts. Um, it gives us a sense of focus versus fuzziness, a, a, little, a greater feeling of clarity in our lives, right? Mm. And so the science has proven that these benefits can be enjoyed by any person. And again, if you're listening or watching, that means you. If you're a human being, this isn't some fancy thing that you have to go to Harvard to, to get the benefit of, right? This is something that anybody, no matter your circumstance, can benefit from. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we all had a little more sense of clarity, a little more sense of purpose, a little more sense of well-being, that our life was on track, that we were moving in the right direction? Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing for everybody? Yes, I, I, and that brings me to when I did research on you, I, something I read that you have written, written that I love, that it, uh, even slow progress is success. And I think that's so powerful. Thank you. I, I love that idea. I mean, so years ago, you know, I, like similar to yourself, it sounds like I've read a lot of kind of self-development things over the years. I mean, going back, this is at least 30 years ago now, there was a, a man named Earl Nightingale, and he was a radio host and a speaker and writer and whatnot. And, uh, and he's passed on so, some years ago now, but a uh, very thoughtful man. And I stole this definition from him. So I can't always attribute things that I know I got from somebody else because I just, just don't remember. I didn't write them down, but this one I do remember. So Earl Nightingale. Uh, the late Earl Nightingale, he said, success is the progressive realization of a worthwhile goal or idea. Mm. Mm. And that's where that comes from. I just love that. I mean, something he thought about a great deal because he wrote about success a lot. And I love this idea that progress is success. I'll give a good business example again. Have you ever heard of an Apple computer called the Lisa? No. You know what? Hardly anybody has ever heard of a Lisa computer. You know, Lisa might be your neighbor back in high school, but Lisa as a computer, we just don't know what that is. And yet, <laughs> Apple computer, right? The people with more billions of dollars in the banks and they know what to do with today. Apple computer back in the day bet the entire company on this new computer called Elisa. Mm -hmm. And they put out, you know, the big show like Apple likes to do. Steve Jobs did the show. And uh, they put out the Mac, the, not the Macintosh, the Lisa. And they said, this is the best thing since sliced bread. You got to have one. And nobody agreed with them. <laughs> they were almost bankrupted. The company it was an abject business failure. Mm -hmm. But what Lisa was, was the very first commercially produced graphical user interface. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they took that abject failure that almost destroyed the company 
And they said, well, what was good about this, right? What did we learn from this? Well, people love the graphical user interface, but they hated these other things. So they got rid of the other things and they improved those. They improved the graphical user interface a little bit more. And a year or so later, what did they do? They put out the very first Macintosh 512K. Mm-hmm. I owned one of them. The screen was nine inches. <laughs> you couldn't tilt it. <laughs> it was monochrome. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. And it was the really coolest computer we'd ever seen. And yes. I liked it because I was a finance guy and it ran this weird, arcane, brand new program called Microsoft Excel. Mm-hmm. It was the only platform that you could run Microsoft Excel on, which was a great spreadsheet. And so I built our first zero-based budget on a Mac 512K with a nine-inch screen. Today, talk about technology change. I have two 24-inch monitors, which I really love my big monitors now. But, (laughs) but, you know, success, if it's only I met my goal 100%, we are all doomed to be failures. Mm, So success is the progressive realization of a worthwhile goal or ideal. And I think if we look at it that way, I love this idea. I was uh, talking to some people. I was in a, in a group the other day and somebody said, I look at my goals as an experiment. Mm-hmm. What a mental shift mm-hmm. to look at my goal. So I want to gain 10 pounds or I want to lose 10 pounds you know, as an idea, right? Or I want to accomplish a certain goal of business within a certain time frame, right? But if I look at my goal as an experiment, do we not build in permission to say, it may not turn out the way I want it, but I'm gonna learn something something from this for sure. That's gonna help me be even more successful the next time around. Mm. The idea of building small victories and breaking down big goals into little chunks, you know, those kinds of things. But This idea of looking at it as a goal, as an experiment. I just love that mental shift. It doesn't mean that you can lose any energy around making it happen, right? In fact, you might unleash more motivation because you're taking a little bit of that pressure off yes. and saying, this is an experiment. I'm going to try this. Here's my hypothesis. Here's the things I'm going to do that I think will make it successful, Here's the things that would get into the way of being successful. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to deal with those in advance and then I'm going to measure it and I'm going to record my progress and I'll see how it goes. Right. And if I seem to be getting off track, I'm going to step back and say, well, that goal is not necessarily written in blood. Right. Yes. So there's so many capricious reasons that we set goals the way we do. I yes. mean, so many reasons, and hardly any of them are really essential. Mm-hmm. And so, anyways, it just gives you permission to be a human and to try and to learn. And I think it's a beautiful kind of mental shift. Yeah, no, I, I thank you for that. That's definitely powerful. And so, David, as, as we get to the end of the interview, I would love to, you know, for somebody that um, titled their book, Knew You, Who Knew, I wonder if... Somebody says, well, how long How long does it take to build a new me? Like, all you're sounding that like, okay, I'm going to write my values here and all that. And, and, you know, of course, I assume that they, oh, it, it can be take a long while. But, but in your mind, 
what's my time investment here if I want to rebuild myself? Well, if you want to do that, let's say that your audience is 20 years old. Mm -hmm. I think statistically, you've got about 60, 60 more years to become a new you. Mm -hmm. If you're 50 years old, you have about 30 years to become a new you. Roughly. Got it. Got it. Got it. So the way to look at this is not, am I a new me next, next week or tomorrow morning, right? The process of discovering who you are and becoming the you that you want to be is a lifelong process. And the beautiful thing about it is that it starts at this moment. As soon as you decide that sounds interesting to you, you start to unleash, to uncover some of that intrinsic personal motivation around that. Your journey has begun and it will never end. That's the beautiful thing about it because it's a process of becoming the person that you want to be. If you become the person you want to be, or at least if you are on that journey or that path, eventually you will arrive. But not until the day you die, because it will go with you throughout your life. It's the beautiful thing about it. It's not an end goal. It's a process goal. Mm, that's beautifully said. And, and, and knowing you're getting closer each day is very fulfilling. Like I think that evolutionary process once you start it, you feel it. You you kind of, there's retrofit, even if you don't cannot say this happened, this specific thing happened, but you know, and there's a certainty that comes with it where, you know, I'm, I'm closer to where I want to be. I don't know where that's it. I don't know what it looks like, but you know, you're walking towards the right goal. At least that's how I feel it. That's it's, beautiful. I love that. It gives you hope. Yes, And it builds that confidence of that belief, that esteem in yourself. And it's, it's a gone going process that never has to end. That's what's beautiful about it is it never has to end. You can have that satisfaction, that sense of well-being for the rest of your life, no matter what your circumstances are. Mm, I love that. So, David, my last question on every interview is beside all these beautiful things that uh, you share with us in your book, what is the thing that makes you tick or that resources you when you are in your low moments and you are disconnected with, you know, what what you feel is your true essence? What's the one thing that maybe uh, helps you get back there? I find that when I'm down, and it does happen, um, that when I reconnect with eternal principles, one of the most common places for that for me is the scriptures. When I reconnect with that sense of who I am as an eternal being, it helps lift me out of my funk. Hmm. That's beautiful. That really is. And I hope knowing that you share that, that you're recovering from COVID, which I'm very happy you are. I hope that you get out of that funk very soon. And that uh, I will share your webpage and your book information with our audience. And I really, really want to thank you because you share so much wisdom with us in this interview that uh, I'm sure everybody is leaving like, I want to know more, like just like how I'm being left after this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Back to Basics. 
you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.